0: This is Melissa, and it is the 12th of March, 2023. I did not know what direction to go with the Redux, the upload, today, but I received an email on Friday from a listener in the American Northeast who wished me Happy International Bagpipes Day. I did not know that Friday was... International Bagpipes Day. So instead of doing anything particularly productive, I just listened to a lot of bagpipe music. And that song was Scotland the Brave. This listener went on to write I've listened to nearly all of Alan's talks, maybe two and three times over at this point. Just was listening to your last post on YouTube with Neil Foster. Anyways, I too found Alan through Alex Jones. I didn't understand Alan. I just knew he believed what he was saying. I had to keep listening over and over, but slowly I started to get the picture. Anishinaabemowin, or Ojibwe the language of the Chippewa, would say Debwe, is how Alan speaks, to speak truthfully. Debway is the correct spelling of Ojibwe. As a kid, I remember watching a Schoolhouse Rocks cartoon unpack your adjectives. You can even make adjectives out of the other parts of speech, like verbs or nouns. All you have to do is tack on an ending like ick or ish or airy. For example, this boy can grow up to be a huge man but still have a boyish face. Boy is a noun, but the ending ish makes it an adjective. Boyish. That describes the huge man's face. Get it? When you realize that people don't look like what people used to look like 70 years ago when they reach adulthood, it's just absolutely astonishing. Like what you were saying about women's hips and men's shoulders, there's no denying it. The fact that no one notices hardly and it's not a topic of conversation is what's most frightening because of how apparent that aspect of reality is. I wrote Alan once, quoting Jackson Brown, People just go where they will, and I never noticed them until I got this feeling that it's later than it seems. I remember Alan saying that he knew our infrastructure was temporary because power lines should be underground. He said the next big thing in the trades wouldn't be construction but taking things down. As people thought we were gearing up for a one-world government, things would go the opposite direction, and we would have city-states with technology beyond your wildest dreams with barbarians on the fringes. It's funny, too, how he said they would give land back to the natives, and I see that trend returning with the Truth and Reconciliation movement. It's strange to see so much of what he said take shape. Did you see how just this week they said that they were able to bring mice into the world using only XY mice, no XX? Alan didn't talk too much about spirituality. I heard him talking about our material bodies, the carbon stuff we are made out of, and the soul as what animates us. I think he said the purpose of the soul is to find your spirit, the one made for you by the Creator. What is the word? Golem is a kind of like a person who is lacking spirit. And golem is like column, like the letter I, in a different font with the lines on top and bottom. In school, I always capitalize I when referring to yourself, but really, the lowercase I is the one who sees. The day I found out Alan died my dad, who has functional frontal temporal lobe dementia, called me up and was asking for help playing a bagpiping song on his phone. My dad is not the type that listens to bagpipes, and he never calls me up for hardly anything. I'll be forever grateful to Alan for everything that he did and for being a friend to so many. Then he sent me the lyrics to Scotland the Brave and I'll read just a few of the lines Hark when the night is falling Here the pipes are calling Loudly and proudly calling down through the glen There where the hills are sleeping, now feel the blood a-leaping, high as the spirits of the old highland men Towering and gallant fame Scotland my mountain hame High may your proud standards gloriously wave, land of my high endeavor, land of the shining rivers, land of my heart forever, Scotland the brave. That hame, Scotland my mountain hame, hame is home. So Hamish, Hamish is homelike, like feeling of home. I'm going to play a little clip from a woman who has listened to Alan for a long time. And it's nice what she shared because Alan's work had, had such an impact on her and it impacted the way that she chose to raise her children. And that, I think, is what we have left, is hoping that those of us, those little eyes who can see things as they are, are able to pass this on to those around us. Hello. Uh,
1: I'm not comfortable sharing my real name, but I wanted to say a few words about Alan and the impact he has had on my life. I started listening to Alan in 2008, back when the internet was very different from what it is today. You could uh, research something on Google and go down several rabbit holes, and one of them landed me on Alan's page. I found his work very different from what everyone else was doing, and there was a treasure trove of articles, transcripts, talks, and of course, I was hooked. There was, you know, so much truth without any agenda there. <clears throat> um, there was Information there that no one at that time was sharing and all of which was straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. But it was a way that uh, it was a way that Alan presented the information and how he put it in context uh, using history and how he read between the lines that put things into uh, so much of it into perspective for me. So as such, I would say his works definitely have had a big impact on my life. I listened to the podcast daily and as I worked uh, at that time for a large bank at that time, I, I began to really pay attention to the little things that were rapidly changing the technologies that were being implemented cr- across the bank. I worked at and several financial services firms to uh, monitor and control transactions and a lot of other things, but you know, long story short, Alan Watt was a huge reason why I ultimately decided to stay home, homeschool my kids. I've uh, never looked back since then and so grateful for that. He got me started on the path of also staying away from a lot of unnecessary interventions, <laughs> um, medically speaking. Most of all, I'm grateful to him for transcending the topics of left versus right, or, you know, one race versus another. As used to say, it's always been the big boys in the club versus everyone else. And that the elite have no country, no creed. And it's once you realize these simple truths, uh, you begin to transcend so many of the issues that keep us divided and um, distracted. So like I said, this was uh, very different from what everyone else in the media and even the alternative media is always preaching it. and with always making it about right versus left conservative versus liberal or one race versus another etc cetera. Uh, and <clears throat> not gonna lie there were definitely times where i found myself uh depressed <laughs> listening to alan's truth and there were times he you- flat out said there's no such thing as a grassroots revolution, how infiltrated each and every institution agencies that, so that true change is extremely hard at an organizational level. And he did, however, always speak about the power of an individual and how like the, the state or the lead always fear the individual. And again, this was such a simple truth to me that, that did bring some solace that there is something that, you know, no one can take away from me. And I definitely feel Alan was a truly brilliant mind with his research, the sheer amount of work that he put into it, you know, the original music and even those few lines of verses or poetry he wrote, introducing each podcast and just being able to put everything in the right context. Um, I was deeply saddened by his passing. I'm very happy that his you know works will not be forgotten and that his podcasts and website are still running. Thank you, Ellen, for dedicating your life to the truth.
0: Neil Foster recorded a little clip about Alan.
2: Hi. This is Neil Foster of the Irish Sentinel, Sovereign Independent back in the day, and Reality Bites Radio. I don't know if this is going to be so much a tribute to Alan, but uh, just my own uh, memories of uh, many, many hours talking to the man uh, and learning and learning and learning as time went on. I suppose, starting at the beginning, I was living in the the mountains in Bulgaria. And like many who, who finally woke up to reality of the situation they were living in, the world they were living in, uh, I was watching Alex Jones' Wars, and Alan came on as a guest and I heard his Scottish accent and I thought, oh, this is a Scottish guy, let's see what this guy's got to say and from the first few minutes I was just gobsmacked by this man's knowledge, I started going looking for Alan's work of which there was volumes and volumes of it um and he would always encourage people to go and you know download it for free etc which i uh, i did um then i started listening to his back catalogue and really uh, the knowledge that he had and the information he disseminated was incredible and i don't think there really is anyone out there with that depth of history of this this uh, evil <laughs> that we're living through and many many of the things you talked about have happened now that's not a coincidence that's, that's a result of decades of research pure and simple you don't get that that type of knowledge and that the perspective of what's happening in the world without doing that. And he dedicated uh, a large part of his life to that. Uh, Yeah, the mountains of Bulgaria. So I I spent many hours listening to Alan and just trying to get my head around all the things he was saying. Went and bought a load of books that he'd mentioned. uh, And as he said, every time he mentioned them, the price went up. So it was uh, important you you grabbed them while you could. uh, Or they very quickly seemed to disappear but as time went on we uh, I can't remember if we did radio first or we did the event in Dublin first, I can't remember but we ran a conference in Dublin under the Sovereign Independent banner and we asked Alan to do a video for us which he he kindly did uh, I think 45 minutes to an hour and we played that right at the start of that conference and you get the stragglers coming in and all the rest. but but everybody who sat down uh watched that and was riveted by it um and it still surprises me today even when you talk to people in the so-called truth movement of which you know it's, it's very very hard to find truth and i don't really see much movement in it but even today when you talk to people who you know believe that they're they're awake, they know what's going on uh, oh, have, you, have you heard of Alan Moore? Uh, no and that that still, still shocks me today that, that people who are supposed to be aware uh, aren't aware of Alan's work or of course many of them still think that Trump is going to come back and save them so that's how uh, shallow down the rabbit hole they are, I guess but uh, yeah the radio I think I tried to count them up but I think there was 25, 26 interviews that uh, well, I, I call them, they're not interviews really they're just actually discussions um, Alan and I had and we covered various, various topics and Alan would always have an answer he would always have an answer to your question um, and he would he would do his best to, to in, in intricate detail, <laughs> he would he would explain uh, what you thought was a simple question, and he'd go off on this this tangent, um, and tangent and another tangent, and take you deeper and deeper and deeper into the answer. Which which was was incredible, but uh, in, terms, in terms of my perspective as the in a very interviewer. I just sat with the headphones on and listened. There was no point. Uh, I, I obviously I interrupt you sometimes just to clarify something or to to maybe take it off on another tangent. But it was it was great to just let them let them speak and uh, for people to listen. As I as I always said to my guests, you know, it's people haven't come here to listen to me; they've come here to listen to the guests. So you know, take it away. The other thing about Alan, people say, "Oh, doom and gloom, doom and gloom." Uh, when in fact, you know, reality, unfortunately, uh, these days particularly, is doom and gloom because there doesn't seem to be any way out of this uh, at the moment. Uh, maybe that'll change. Maybe it won't, and we just have to ride it out and see what happens um, down the line. A bit. But Alan would call you up out of the blue. Uh, you know, 7, 8 o'clock at night or something. And before you knew it, it was uh ten thirty, eleven o'clock. You'd been on the phone for two, three hours at times. And just the conversation would just flow and flow and flow and flow. And some of those would have made, made great radio as well. But there was a lot of laughter in it as well. There was a lot of, uh, what do you call it, dark humour about the situation. And would laugh and chat uh, and I wasn't the only one he called up There was, I know there were other people he, he did this to as well and he would give you his time he would just give you his time and it was kind of therapeutic if you like it, it you know a lot of people say Alan Alan kept him sane well, I, th- I think I can say that about myself as well in, in many respects because he was a voice of uh, <laughs> rationality in all of us and he always said he wasn't a guru, he wasn't here to save the world or anything, he was just here to give you the information and it was up to you to do what you you wanted with it and to you know, examine it, uh verify it. Um and he was very, very meticulous with his information. Uh to the point where every everything he talked about was linked. Everything. Uh and even there would be even other links in there which would relate to the subject which he hadn't even mentioned but uh, there was in-depth um, bibliography for every talk he did and uh, well my biggest regret I guess is that I never actually met him uh, my wife and I did discuss uh, going up to Canada never actually mentioned it to Alan but <laughs> I don't think but um that never transpired so as I say that's uh, that's a regret I've got but as to the time spent talking to the man I, I can't I can't say a bad word about any of it um, he was he was a he was a library of knowledge I mean you, you couldn't as I say I don't think there's anybody anybody that has that kind of depth of knowledge had that that depth of knowledge uh, in the so-called truth movement and certainly a lot of people didn't even want to go down that way Uh, it was all very superficial uh, for many people I should just finish off by saying I wouldn't even be doing this recording right now if it wasn't for Alan because he he didn't actively encourage me to get on radio but he made me believe in my own mind that i I could do it. I could just, you know, go on, look at articles, read them out, and just, and you know, I do it in a kind of amateurish way. But you know, I've not done it for a while. I've not done it for over a year now, and I really should get back into it because I feel I'm doing nothing. But yeah, maybe I'll use this reminiscing about Alan to encourage me to do it again. I don't know what else to say really Um, I miss you Alan I miss you Um, uh, your knowledge is still there of course and Melissa is doing a great job keeping your uh, memory alive with the recordings she's putting out week on week and again if you listen to those anybody who hears this and hasn't heard of Alan Watt um I encourage you to go there and listen to the download the archives listen to them from way way back and you'll see that here's a man who knew what he was talking about Um, I guess that's all I can say thanks to Melissa for allowing me to do this or for asking me to do this uh, as I say not so much a tribute just a collection of short memories and there there are many more but uh, I've got to keep this short thank you
0: so when I was thinking of what which of Alan's talks I wanted to excerpt from, I decided, well, why not do Neil and Alan talking together on Reality Bites Radio? And this is from September 10, 2015. It's a, a good show. The The entire hour or, or so is worth listening to. They get into how cultures are portrayed, how cultures are demonized when your masters want you to go to war on their behalf, how cultures are also mythologized, say, for example, the American West. We're just given enough education, whatever period of history that we live in, we're just given enough education to do the work that is required of us. And I think one of the things that can be a little overwhelming, especially without Alan's weekly, regular voice saying, okay, this is what you're hearing on the news, and I'll break it down for you and analyze it, and you'll perhaps see it in a different way. And without his voice on a regular basis, it's very easy to get a little lost or overwhelmed. And I was thinking this afternoon... If you try to follow, for instance, Ukraine, or you try to follow the scamdemic, or the vaccine or the vaccine fallout or the, what the World Economic Forum is up to, you've got some choices here. And I think this is true of anybody, whether they're waking up whether they're conscious of what's happening or or they're just blithely going through life, is that you can be an expert or you can be a generalist. And the expert is going to say, and I'm not talking about those experts, but those of us who might decide, well, what I'm going to concentrate on is I'm going to stay with COVID. I'm going to stay with this. I'm going to get into the vaccine, I'm going to go down whatever tunnel that takes me, um, but that's my expertise. Or you try to be a generalist and just follow everything that's coming at you 90 miles an hour. And I find actually for myself that either approach is, is not possible. I don't have time to be a generalist and it just seems myopic in the face of what is really happening to try to be an expert on any one subject. So I always return to Alan's talks old ones, it doesn't matter how far back they go. It just kind of helps keep put things in perspective and this morning, I was um looking at a few pages from the cutting through books. And Alan was writing in there about masonry and um, how the brotherhoods are used in the priestly orders and the military orders. He gets into the deviancy behind it. And I liked what he had to say about war. He said, The war is always on the people, fear is always used. But, you know, throughout, like the Cold War, for instance, the real purpose of that was compliance and, and obedience and keeping people in a state of constant fear. And there are some, you know, I'll, I'll turn on it, any news outlet to see what's going on, for instance, what, how they're covering Ukraine. And today I was listening to a little bit of coverage from all different sources and I was struck by several things. I mean, I was actually, what you might say, gobsmacked when I heard two different news outlets describe the situation as in Ukraine as gaining inches and losing thousands. Now, one of the newscasts that I listened to said that neither side, Russia nor Ukraine, is giving a death count. They're not... Saying what their losses are, but these newscasters are convinced that it's you know many thousands on a weekly, daily basis, whatever you know, this is like the war of attrition. But yet again, two different sites compared what is happening there to these great conflicts of the last century, and both of them said it's like. Stalingrad or Verdun it's a meat grinder there and I was thinking war of attrition if if we could believe anything then they would just be willing to throw the little guy the the soldier on the ground into the trench or into the field or into whatever forever because they'll keep this going as long as they want to this is about Billions and billions and billions of dollars going into who knows whose pocket, but it's the military-industrial complex. And the other really interesting piece of news that I heard in the war, the war coverage uh, was I learned that this week was not only International Bagpipes Day, but it was International Women's Day and because of that one of the female news anchors was talking to a Ukrainian minister politician a female mp and she was saying talk about how women are being helped and promoted and cared for during this war and the minister was the minister was talking about all of the different programs that they had in place and how people couldn't forget the women and this was so important and the women were so impacted by the war and so forth. But then they really got to the meat of what this whole segment was about. Because this minister just recently put forth a bill in the Ukrainian parliament for the legalization I guess or acknowledgement or codification somehow of dealing with same sex unions and she said this is so important because of course these people are also involved in the war and if one of them loses a partner or the partner is injured and has to go to the hospital they have no legal rights And but you know they just kept talking uh, about how important this was and she hoped that it would pass and And she said, you know, the majority of the Ukrainian people are behind this. 56% of the Ukrainian people would like to see same-sex unions legalized and helped. I thought, well, that is really what these so-called wars are always about. It's about all of the other cultural changes that can be rammed through while those at the top are raking in the billions on their arms deals. And Alan and Neil are going to talk about war and culture change, and so I will leave you to listen to that.
3: Welcome to All Radio on the 10th of September, 2015. And uh, i to welcome back Alan Watt to the, the show. You there, Alan? Yeah, I'm here, yep. Yep, loud and clear. Okay, um... I wrote a short email to you as, as usual, and uh, it, was, it was concerning how today's society perceives old society and old cultures. And uh, I wondered if the TV and the, the movies are trying to portray certain cultures in a certain way, so as uh, people can say, well, you know, they, they deserve it. That's that's what they're like. You know, they're kind of they're savages, or they're you know they backwards peoples, or or whatever. I, mean, I suppose uh, I was watching Vikings and then that they're just totally portrayed as, as brutal savages every one of them a psychopath I mean there was one scene where the guy just gets up and chops somebody's legs off just because he's sitting the wrong way and things right. like that um, and I, I was thinking about Greece and how, how that's kind of transpired and whether these types of uh, societies as they were in ancient times the kind of warrior peoples um, are, are being kind of goaded into reverting back to the way they were you see some of the, the riots in Greece and they've got um they've got dustbin lids trash can lids and um batons and it you know if, if you if you saw them from a distance you would think they were ancient warriors uh, with a shield a shield and a sword um yeah. in terms of the way society is portraying them now it seems to be it seems to be making these people out right across the board it doesn't matter what historical drama you you, you watch the 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 ordinary people are savages basically
4: yes uh, yeah there's no doubt about it that um, the the whole world uh, uh, through the same uh, international educational system and its various formats of indoctrinations have been dumbing everybody down across the planet since about the actually since the days of John Dewey you know uh, where they talked about bringing in uh, a rather kind of peasant-type society, uh, so that the elites could dominate and run the world, what they called properly by experts and so on, um, has been going on for an awful long time. And and you're seeing that this portrayal, always again through uh, fictional uh, things, movies and so on, uh, as they tried to debase different cultures down to some low common denominator of, of uh, primitive peasantry that needs expert rule. You see. And, uh, and lots of folk who watch this stuff their whole life long uh, will adopt those particular viewpoints as well on the cultures. I've heard people even in Scotland saying, oh yeah, there's too many people and blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah which is utter trite because the, the population of Scotland really uh, was around 5 million at that time and um, if you want a minority group, there's the Scots and now they're almost gone altogether with the massive influx of uh, European immigrants and African immigrants and so on and so uh, everything you, you see on TV uh, and um, and movies really uh, is really uh, it's lies, basically. It's propaganda, and it's really a preparation and indoctrination as well, uh, getting you ready for some other type of system being brought in. So, uh, but as I say, the average person who watches TV all their life will actually adopt the opinions that are given to, uh, to them. And uh, and take the elites' point of view, even though they're basically working class people. I've heard it out their mouths too.
2: Yeah. In, t-
3: in, t- in terms of that, I mean, I, I've never I've never seen a, one of these kind of sword and sandal movies of, of old and recent series or recent movies on on the Romans um, being being classed as barbarians. I, I've never I've never seen one yet. They're, they're always classed as. Um, the, the, the pinnacle of civilization, uh, which, which fell apart because people got greedy and, you know, the, the, too much sex and all the rest of it. But they're always, they're always portrayed as uh, these noble warriors who went off and conquered places. I mean, it doesn't say they went off and slaughtered
2: everybody.
4: Yeah. Uh-huh. That's that, that standard, again. Uh, and for, again, in the European history books, uh, which, again, catered, remember, uh, education for ordinary folk was a, a much later development. Uh, really for the industrial uh, era because they had to get basic reading and writing and basic arithmetic and so on so that people could work in the factories and, and, and sort of work and manage the factories. Uh, if it wasn't for that, probably they would never have given you basic education unless your parents could afford to bring in a private uh, teacher or something. That's how Robert Burns was taught, you know. Uh, so, uh, But basically um, they never wanted the people to, at the bottom to get any education at all. Uh, and after, once they did get them education, uh, in Europe and in Britain especially, uh, at least Britain wrote, wrote about it, they had big meetings of the nobility and the aristocracy uh, worrying about uh, taking down or reducing the work hours from 16 or 17 hours per day in the factories and down to, and giving them a couple of hours extra for themselves, and the kind of mischief they might get up to if they started chatting to themselves, which could be compounded uh, with problems for the elite's rule, if you also gave them a basic education where they could actually transmit what they'd read uh, about life, history, and so on, and societies, and they might eventually rebel. So there's a tremendous problem, uh, right up into the, the 1900s, uh, about this particular problem of giving basic education to the uh, to the peasants, and that's what they, how they framed it, basically the commoners, and and uh, what effect it would have on on uh, a stable society. Uh, that's never really changed. And then you've got the other groups too, the communist groups uh, elements that came in as well, which um, uh, really worked towards the same goal of expert rule by an intelligentsia. Run in a scientific fashion for society, so it's it's, it's all it's the same agenda that that's, that's gone together. These two roads really merge into one, with the same goals, and that's why you see it all working out today on, on all sides and all parties.
3: As uh, for um in, uh, in America, we've got the the native Indians, as it were, um, portrayed portrayed as well and an uneducated, uh, illiterate, but of course. They had their own language. Just because they didn't speak English doesn't mean they're illicit, you know?
4: That's right. And also, too, the problem, again, across Europe was that it was standard uh, for those who could afford education in universities and so on, but most folk could not. Uh, it was always an elitist thing, uh, was to be taught what they called classic history, which was based on Roman and Greek history. And, uh, they taught the Latin, they taught the Greek, in fact, right up until the year 19, about the World War I, and most of these, these upper schools. And that's what they based their model of what civilization was. It was from the days of ancient Greece, uh, and so on. In fact, Asia and that wasn't they weren't mentioned at all in those, those, those teachings. And, uh, it was all Greek and Roman, uh, who brought civilization, especially the Roman part that took over from Greece, by conquering to unify what then was the ancient world. And that goal was always uh, present amongst uh, certain classes in in, in the upper uh, strata of bringing in a world order again, you know, based on kind of Roman-type order as well. Uh, And they always said that they went to civilize the world, didn't go to plunder it, and to spread his tax base and so on and resources, and it was always to bring civilization and you 'll find with the, the empirical ages of the, the, the colonizers of Europe, different countries, they had the same format, they used the same excuses. They never told you that the big uh, merchant bankers were running the countries already, and and using your armies to go and plunder, so that they and their own boys could get in there and get the uh, all the goods and raw resources and all the rest of it. Uh, so there's a tremendous hypocrisy in history, uh, which was always covered in lies. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, go, go back to when I was a child, um, you know, you we always watched the the latest Western movies and all the rest of it, and again, even even the 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 kind of the shopkeepers in the little towns there were semi illiterate themselves, and there was there was always there was always kind of the the head guy in the town, whether it was a sheriff or or somebody else, some some corporate entity, um, was always there to to denigrate everybody and, and say that uh, you know we need to do this, we need to do that, and uh, you just you know you just mind your place kind of thing, and that, that was always how it was portrayed in the movies. And and again, later on when you, 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 the Indians were portrayed as you know alcoholics uh, you know sa- savages they were the ones doing all the scalping and uh, they, they, they deserved what was coming to them which was as you say civilization. Mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's what was portrayed and if we bring it back into what's happening today in Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq we, we see the same thing um, yeah. the same game plan um, you know, dehumanise the, the people that live there even although you don't know who they are you've never met them, Uh, you know nothing about them until you're you're told that they were, you know, terrorists.
4: And uh, away you go. Yeah, it's an old strategy again, very old strategy. Uh, But you always demonise the enemy regardless, and the Romans did the same thing until they had them, quote, civilised, you know, and brought into the Roman Empire. Uh, Then they'd lift them up a bit to the extent in their history books. But, uh, yeah, you always call them barbarian, uh, etc., uh, even though you, you, the Romans themselves were very paganistic, had their own kinds of sacrifices too, and including sacrificing their own troops for king for the day and all that, uh, for the Mars uh, uh, celebration. So they, yeah, it's amazing the hypocrisy involved with uh, those who, who get paid, the mercenaries who go off to get paid to, to civilize other countries for the big uh, mer- merchant bankers of the day. And ancient Rome had the same problem. It, ancient Rome was run really. Uh, doesn't matter who was the figurehead in power. He was dependent upon the loans that he got to to manage his big empire and the massive armies and all the rest of it. There's a, a lot of history involved in that, and they even had the, the merchant bankers, uh, workers going off with the armies, and they managed all the, all the payments. You know the weekly or monthly payments to the troops. They managed all, all the uh, the logistical supplies and all the rest of it, and it all went down and carefully written down and all the rest of what was owed. And uh, the Caesar, whoever happened to be, would the emperor would go off and, and he'd meet with the, uh, the lenders of the day. Yeah. You know. So nothing's really changed from then to, to the present time.
3: You know. so, so when you know when um, say people in Scandinavia watch watch a program like Vikings. Um, yeah. it, it, they must have a better idea of drone history than the TV portrays. But do you think they actually take on some of the, the characteristics or you know, uh, try to live up to those kind of characteristics that are portrayed on the television in the modern, in the
4: modern era? The, the one country in the world where you'll see it uh, emulated to an extent... I mean, remember the whole culture idea is so also fashion. It's fashion, music, and the whole culture industry... Uh, and the movies, and uh, you'll see it. It's more prominent in the U.S. Who actually, you know, you'll see the whole, the whole during the '70s. It churned out these different Dukes of Hazard and all these different things. The guys with the, with the, with the, uh, you know, tailor-made jeans where they're. Uh, the generals were so crushed, you'd almost think that that's what their Adam's apple happened to be. Uh, the tight pants, the tight shirt, and the big hats and all that, p- acting like cowboys, big V8 engine cars, and running moonshine. Uh, that's the image that was portrayed. We were free and we're wild and watchers sort of idea. And most, so many of the Americans actually have thought that all their ancestors were cowboys, which is nonsense, utter rubbish, because factory towns, were taken from Europe by the same boys who ran them in Europe and they set them up across the US, brought the immigrants in, shoved them into different uh, mining towns and so on, factory towns, gave them the tokens that the guy who owned it uh, had his own tokens for money and uh, you couldn't leave the damn place because you couldn't exchange them for dollars, you were stuck there. That didn't really change to World War One, you know. So, uh, but they don't know that their the history has been given through Hollywood, and uh, as I say, through Hollywood, uh, they, they all think they were free and wild and can make their own uh, make their own destinies and all the rest of it. It's, it's utter rubbish. Yeah.
3: yeah. It's funny as you mentioned. the, the J- Hazard, I mean, I've actually seen some of those types of cars around here. Uh, the yeah. same paint jobs and everything, you know, and. Yeah. You know, presumably the same types of people driving them,
4: mm-hmm. or they want to be easier. They want to be easier.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly that culture, here, that fast car culture. You know, um, kind of drive like a maniac. I mean, we we hear silence down on the the big highway down here, and there's, there's a lot of accidents around here on the, yeah. the interstates and stuff. Um, and it's, it's it's just atrocious driving. Uh, they, they drive like they're in a movie, and uh, uh-huh, it's no exactly it's yeah. wonder it's a
4: wonder they're trying to live a, a fantasy that never really was. You know, uh, but what it is what's true too. I mean, uh, most ordinary people, uh, and and sociology proves it, and anthropology and all the rest of it. If you really study into it, um, most folk who lived in the rural areas in in any country had to get on together pretty well uh, for survival, you know, purposes. You couldn't have uh, the, the kind of real Wild West as it's often portrayed, exciting and, and gunslingers and all the rest of it. You couldn't really have that because it would be chaos uh, and those who could uh, make things work would all leave to go somewhere else. Uh, so so it's, it's the same in ancient Rome too. The, 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 the peasantry did the real work. Uh, they provided all their food and everything else and, and they had their own... Uh, customs and all the rest of it Which were kind of foreign to the to the elites um, And they, they were pretty well um, a, a, a true uh, Well formed society you find the same thing in most countries too uh, They didn't think about going off to war It's always elite to want to go off to war To conquer and gain more And become more prosperous themselves For their own uh, survival um, and, and progeny uh, becoming wealthy down through time—that's never changed to the present day. But so the ordinary folk in every country have always managed to get on pretty well together. If you look at the history, uh, often it's given uh, and through again fiction uh, of Scotland, for instance, that, that you'd think that the clans were always slaughtering each other, which wasn't true at all, you know. And there was lots of intermarriage between the clans it went on all the time, and um, and lots of cooperation as well. Uh, and they certainly had their own boundaries to an extent but you didn't get slaughtered if you stepped over that imaginary line uh, but, but again because England because England came over and dominated Scotland and even when I say England I also mean the Normans you know they kind of slipped in quietly into Scotland <coughs> you didn't have the big big massive battles that they did in England um, but suddenly you had these lords would appear in Scotland and, and they were really Norman extract etc and related to the ones who dominated England, and uh, they changed the histories and, and made you and once again made it seem like it, before they came, there nothing but barbarism everywhere. Utter nonsense. Scotland even was. <laughs> Rome, ancient Romans, used to send uh, their elite children off to, to the universities in Scotland in ancient times, and most folk <laughs> have no idea that even happened. Uh, they even had ones in Ireland, ancient Ireland. Uh, well documented too uh, by the by the Romans and, and the Greeks as well. So there was an ancient culture that certainly was not, uh, uh, you know, um, barefooted and all the rest of it, just uh, managing the cows. Uh, it was definitely an educated class uh, of the Celtic peoples.
3: Yeah. T- taking that as a fact, um, in, in terms of Hadrian's Wall, I mean, is that just a, was that just a myth? To so, to, you know, to make out that the Scots were just all savages?
4: Oh, wasn't, wasn't that? No, they weren't savages. They were defending their country. <laughs> from invasion and, and, um, Rome, every country they went to invade at one, except Scotland, that's the only country they couldn't conquer. And, uh, they, they, they went up there. There was Antonine as well and Hadrian. But the Ninth Legion, um, was sent up into Scotland. And it was, Rome was in shock When it was found out that not one single One of them returned and they couldn't find a trace of them And then they sent the 13th legion in, And the same thing happened to them as well And that's what made them build the wall They realised they couldn't conquer these people They were so fiercely defend, Defended their, their country They wouldn't let it go And um, they're very proud people And they love their country Scots have a great love of the land they're born on You know, It's just incredible And uh, why would you hand it over to a bunch of folk who're going to turn you into slaves? You know. Yeah, that's what, that's what they'd like you to think. A bunch of hairy guys, you know, with clubs, uh, utter nonsense. Uh, and and um, as I say, that they had they had thriving ancient cities and in, in, in places across Scotland too, uh, and England as well. And you. you know.
3: Yeah, I mean, in terms of that, like we're portrayed as savages, and but obviously we're. As you say, just defending the country and defending it pretty well, by the sounds of things. Yep. Um, it, I mean, at that, at that point, the, the culture The culture creation industry starts to portray Scotland as losers. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. right, I mean, from then, we're, you know, we can't run our own country. We're not, we're not good enough to run our own country. Blah blah blah, right, all this right. kind of stuff. Right. Uh, our, our soccer team's rubbish. You know, all, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And, um, yeah. it, you know, it's just uh, it's this kind of. I, I found it in Scottish people. Um, that maybe some of the. The, the lesser educated, shall we say, um, saying, oh, well, you know, that's just, that's, just, that's just Scottish for you. You know, that's, that's just the way we are. You know, yeah. we're always going to be second. We're always going to be useless. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and I find that's a, a mindset that seems to be, you know, kind of growing, if anything. It's, this whole independence uh, stuff is just farcical. Mm-hmm. You know, when pe- people have, seem to have this uh, defeatist attitude about everything.
4: Yeah. So what, what, what you have is a deculturalisation process. And there's actually, I mean, even from the Romans up to the present time, uh, it, it, there's techniques of, and they're using it, by the way, in the Middle East, uh, you know, in Iraq and so on. Uh, they sent anthropologists in with all the troops, you know that, uh, to find ways to, to work with the people there. But you start deculturalizing the people to, to, to lose their culture, lose their patriotism, lose the love, love of, their, of themselves, each other, and the country. Uh, that's standard as you knock a country down. Ireland and Scotland um, uh, literally uh, had had English language English, English language forced upon them by law, you know. And uh, at certain times in, in Scottish history, if you spoke Gaelic, you were hung on the spot, you know. After Culloden, that happened too, and uh, you couldn't even wear your tartan. Eventually, your, that was your your tribal's. It, it, it was a nice damned uh, outfit, you know. You couldn't wear that either. That was your that was your attachment to all your ancestors and your whole history before you. That was all written in the codes of the tartan of your clan. Uh, you were forbidden to wear that too, or they'd kill you. With one exception, and the exception was, yeah, you could you could speak Gaelic and you'd wear the tartan if you fought for the English army abroad. You know, that's how they won Canada. You know, it was the Fraser Highlanders after Culloden uh, that they brought over. Uh, they faced either getting slaughtered. Uh, or, or fighting for the English, and they won the heights at, at uh, Quebec, you know. Uh, so under Wolf. so um, uh, that's all they've done ever since has been the shock troops for the British Empire. You know? So you've been, you, we've been deculturalized totally. Your history's been almost eradicated. Uh, You've been made to feel a second-class citizen. If you had a Scottish accent, you, you were definitely weighed down the rung on the class scale, as far as the, those in London were, were concerned. Uh, when you opened your mouth, didn't matter who your IQ was. If you opened your mouth, your accent would immediately categorise you in a certain class, and you were not deemed to get above it. You know that—that's factual history. Yeah.
3: So off they go in the land in um, Wessex, and the, the, the English there don't speak English speaking in speaking their, their own language. Uh, Northumbria uh, has a different language. Uh, nobody in England speaks English at that time. That's right. Um, um, and all different, all different uh, dialects. And when did when did that start changing?
4: Well, for a long time, you had the law, Remember, and uh, the Danes all oh, oh, really ran a good part of England for one one time. Even be, even before that, uh, you had the, the lords of the Isles that lived in the west coast of Scotland who literally were part of the, the whole pre-Viking group. We don't realize the whole of Scandinavia and Scotland were attached in ancient, really ancient times, uh, going into what was called prehistory. And they had uh, often, the, the Lord of the Isles, who lived in the west coast of Scotland, but in a castle there, uh, were also ruled a good part of England, uh, all the way down through Northumbria was part of Scotland for a long time it was given away in marriage eventually of, of royalties but uh, uh, they were the, uh, also the rulers of the Scandinavia as well and, and, and it was quite acceptable from the, from the Scandinavians point of view that those people and those who, who were in Scotland were the same people to an extent you know to a good extent, so there's no no nasty feelings about it, and sometimes ones in Scandinavia would rule uh, a good part of Scotland and Ireland as well. They're all related, you know. So uh, um, again, uh, there's a long, long prehistory uh, that goes into uh, the history up until the, the early Catholic times, and again the Catholicism as well tried to eradicate a lot of that uh, that as well. Yeah, the history. So. Y- was de- deculturalised by eradicating history. Uh, people don't even know that Scotland had a, a, a naval fleet and in fact they sunk the Ro- a Roman fleet uh, off the, the, the east coast of Scotland
3: yeah. well, Another thing that was portrayed in the, the Vikings thing was that uh, I think it was um, Wessex and Northumbria came to an agreement with the Vikings that they, they would give them some land if they helped them as, uh, as mercenaries um, to conquer Mercia I don't, I don't know how how true that is. But um, were, were the Vikings used as mercenaries in England?
4: Uh, not so much, really, as the way it's portrayed. No. Um, as I say, the Danes had a lot. of The Danes had settled in, in part of Wessex and so on, in part or parts of England, and they had the Dan Law there up until Harold, King Harold, you know, his days, and, and then they were conquered. Uh, with the Normans, et cetera. And the Normans really changed the whole face of everything and kind of rewrote the history as well. Uh, uh, there's no doubt that, that certain clan chiefs uh, in the Norwegian uh, side uh, would also hire occasionally men, e- e- either to a, a cousin somewhere over in, say, in Scotland or Ireland, uh, and that's always been the way too. It's not so much mercenary. Well, you, you, but your, your tribe would go off and fight for your, your cousin or whatever in different countries. That, that was their form of mercenary, I suppose. Uh, Scotland did it once in a while too. And in fact, see, even in, in, towards the north of Italy uh, today, you still get, uh, certain red-headed uh, Italians on to the north uh, of Italy because a tribe, one, one clan was sent over there to fight in a war. And, um, They never got back, and and for a long time they spoke Gaelic, and a lot of them still have Scottish surnames. So they were widely they were world travellers. We understand that they were world travellers in those days, and um, they didn't they didn't see the world's one tiny little localised place. They saw it to be explored, and they were really early explorers as well. So a lot of trade too came through Scotland and Ireland as well from different countries. Uh, from ancient times as well right, right up and again to the Normans came and the Normans changed everything uh, including the their versions of history lots of the history was burned, burned in massive uh, piles basically to eradicate the past you always eradicate the past to dominate a people and, and after a generation or two of indoctrination of the first generation, it, you know, if you indoctrinate your first generation, they indoctrinate the children for you. Uh, and then you end up with this kind of vague nothingness of, of what the past was for you, you know. When everybody around you, or the one who's conquered and rules you, like London, for instance, it dominates the world during an empire era. Whereas you yourselves have, have nothing to look back on except to and Haggis, you know, and stuff like that. That's all you're left with. Yeah. That's a joke. Yeah.
3: yeah, I do remember, like many years ago, one, one, wondering what it was to be Scottish anymore because I, I, I couldn't see anything in Scotland that was that was that was Scottish anymore. Yeah. It was just it was just this um, this amalgamation of of English um, cultures or, or you know things, and it was all kind of intermingled. There was no discerning thing I mean you had these um, guys standing on street corners uh, with bagpipes uh, you know collecting money and, and uh, that was it I, I just thought there's, there's your culture just sold sold for a, a, you know 10p somebody throws it in a box and uh, I, I couldn't discern what, what it actually meant to be Scottish anymore
4: yeah that, that was deliberate absolutely deliberate and um, it's very successful it went on for such a long long time because we, we were put into a colony of, of, of London really you know, London ruled. I, I don't even distinguish London. I, I do distinguish London from England because uh, they, they gave it, even the whole of England a completely different culture as well. There was different groups across it, like Yorkshire and so on that really were separate tribal peoples, very proud and separate from the rest. And eventually they went under as well. So it didn't just happen in Scotland. It was a, a uniformity that was created by a conquering army.
3: I suppose right up to the modern time, but the the amount of mass immigration that's happened in England that's that's gone completely now. Yes. There's, I mean, the, the I, I think I think um, people in the south of England particularly must feel totally um, alienated at this point, and and have no concept of of what you know growing up in a an English society would would be because that simply doesn't exist anymore.
4: It doesn't. No. No.
0: That was Clanadonia. They started as a pipe and drum street band in Glasgow. And you can, you can understand when you listen to pipe and pipe and drum music why this brings out the, the fighting spirit and how it can so easily be used to rouse people up to fight the enemy whoever the enemy is so when I was looking into bagpipes and the history of them and the international bagpipe organization and I, I learned that possibly bagpipes go back to 400 BC and they they started in Egypt or maybe they go back to 1000 BC you know, it depends on where you look what you'll hear but the basic idea of a bagpipe is it the bag is often made or was often made with the the skin of a a sheep or a goat or whatever animal i guess was in your area and then the pipes are carved out of wood and Lots of countries have them. I mean, of course, you, you often think of Scotland or even Ireland, but many countries um, love their pipe music. Bulgaria is, is one, and Turkey. I listen to some great Turkish pipe music, and um, the Egyptians have their great pipe music, and the Swedish have lovely pipes and lovely sound. So there are many parts of the world where... This is kind of tied to the people, their their identity, their land. And that was one of the things that Alan and Neil were talking about. And, you know, I think that we heard Neil say the other day that, you know, he had found the Scottish to be apathetic. And we discussed how the, the fight had kind of been knocked out of them over the years. And Alan made the point there in this clip that I just played when he was talking to Neil that the, the Scottish people, but all people really have traditionally been tied to their land. They, they love their land. And I think that the, the land, you know, the hills where you walk, the sky that you look up to, your little piece, your, your little part of the world is so much of where your identity comes from. And that comes before the colors of your flag or, It's just a kind. It's the essence of who we are, but it's so easily used when they want to use it against us. And I think if you start to really study music and listen to the words of music, like Scotland the Brave, you know the words to that song were written in the fifties. At least the words that you know we hear today, and it conjures up this this mythical. Scotland and it's become a kind of an unofficial national anthem and so many so much of the music that we listen to across the world is the music that that gets us going is the music that is used for war and one of the little trivia pieces that I came across was that in World War I um, the Scottish regiments. They had a lot of pipers, and the, they sent the pipers off into war, but because the the pipers were so easily identifiable, like their location could be pinpointed, they lost a thousand bagpipers during World War One. War of attrition, even the musicians have to go. And that made me think about music in general and the way that it, you know, that it is used and what things symbolize like the flower, the poppies, you know, the, the poppies on Flanders field, Pete Seeger's song, where have all the flowers gone? Uh, I think he said that he was inspired by a piece of Bulgarian folk music, or maybe it was Ukrainian folk music. I think it was Ukrainian. Um, when he wrote that in 1955, but where have all the flowers gone? That, that's like the flower of Scotland. The flower is, comes from the seed. That's your, your men. They have flowered into manhood and to adulthood. And nothing was more tragic than what happened in Europe with a whole generation of men lost to somebody else's war. And, if you go anywhere in Europe, you, it's a little bit different in the States or in Canada, but they have the, the cenotaphs in this, the town square of any town, large or small, with the listing of the dead who, who died in the wars. And it's kind of heartbreaking, because who knows the direction that cultures would go if the flowers had not been taken from the field. And another total piece of trivia here, Rowdy Roddy Piper, I guess he got his name because he had become proficient in playing the bagpipes. And the entrance music that he used when he went into the wrestling ring was Scotland the Brave. Rowdy Roddy Piper from the wonderful movie that everybody needs to see called They Live. You can just put on the sunglasses and you can see that the elite are aliens and they want us to consume and breed and and obey. And I, I think that if we put on the sunglasses at this time, we see that the elite, they may have a little bit different objective for us. And right now, the sunglasses say, Die. So this is the Flower of Scotland by the Quarries, the wonderful folk singer is the Quarries. And I I can help but think of Alan when I hear this song.
5: Oh, Florida, Scotland Will we see your likes again That fought and died for Your way but hell and glen And stood again Throw dead words on me And send him home they do you think again? The hills are bare leaves lie thick and still, all land that's been lost now, which rose so dearly held but stood. Scott. will we see your likes again that fought and died far yet we betel and glen and stood against them though on me, and sent him home.